Welcome to Book Me, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Today, Jay Johnston, author of Kings of Friday Night, The Lincolns. From the Wicked Picket. Did you ever go to the Ticket Wicket so you could hear that Wicked Picket tune performed by Truro, Nova Scotia's premier soul and R&B band, the Lincolns? Well, thousands did back in the 60s, but also for many reunion concerts over subsequent decades until lead singer Frank McKay died in 2019. Jay Johnston was a teenager in Truro when the band started. Like many young people in his hometown, and those along the maritime circuit of legion halls, school and college dances, and provincial exhibitions, the Lincoln shows became something of a life-changing experience. The band played as if their lives depended on winning over everyone in the house as lifelong fans. Jay's book on the Lincolns documents everything from the creation of the band to its effect on race relations in the region. Jay Johnston, welcome to Book Me. Great, great to be here, Costas. Now, no matter what the generation, we know that people bond with the music they hear in their youth. And seeing a, a great live band when you're young leaves a very powerful imprint. Tell us about the kid you were when you first heard and saw the Lincolns. It was really transformative. I, you know, Truro was a nice little town that I was proud of and grew up in. Sleepy little town. And I had no idea that uh, that a band like that with music like that was possible in our little town. It was like being transported to some distant American city where there was rhythm and blues and soul. And it was really just mind-blowing. It was just such an intense experience. So my first time there was made a huge impression on me, as it did on everybody, I think. So we kept going back and back. The original members of the Lincolns were young teens when rock and roll started taking over the hit parade in the late 1950s. And like a lot of kids at that time, they started jamming and, and formed their first band. But but what really sped up the evolution of the Lincolns? You're right. It was, it was a phenomenon that was happening across Americas and, and in Europe and elsewhere, you know, with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and... Really, the thing that transported them to another level, I think, was the addition of Frank McKay as their singer. They had been around and been playing together for a year or more, but it was when Frank arrived, really, that they had a voice that could sing the kind of music they loved. And I think as the years went by, they went more and and deeper into rhythm and blues and soul music. It really became their signature. Growing up in Truro was part of that experience because there was a a local black musician, more than one, there were quite a few, but Murray Dorrington, who was a singer and a local bootlegger at the time, and they used to go down to Murray Dorrington's place and really just imbibe uh, the atmosphere and the kind of soulfulness, and it just became a, a trademark for the Lincolns themselves. And maybe imbibe a few quarts of beer? Yeah, that too. <laughs> I talk about that in the book a bit, uh, 
beer was <laughs> was something that they did consume in sometimes enormous quantities, including on road trips. You mentioned teenage years. I just want to say that it didn't occur to me as I was writing the book, but afterwards, when I look back on the book that exists, it's really a book about the teenage years or, or the early 20s. And it was, the, you know, what the band was going through, the crowd was going through. So I hope that teenagers today, you know, in the 21st century, will have an interest in maybe looking back and seeing what it was like to be young 50, 60 years ago. It, it was interesting, too, uh, because you document some of the changes that were going on in popular music, and you, you've already alluded to the the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And, and for a lot of bands in Atlantic Canada at the time and elsewhere, suddenly there was a demand for a band to play covers of, of those tunes but the Lincolns stubbornly stuck with soul and R&B. Yeah, I, I have to applaud their, because their taste is my taste. And maybe if I hadn't grown up in Truro listening to the Lincolns, maybe I'd like a different kind of music. But I love the Lincoln sound. Uh, I love that soul music and the R&B. It, it separated them from all the other bands in the Maritimes. That plus, they were so tight. And they had the two saxophones, and then they added the big organ. So they had a sound that just overwhelmed you. When you I don't mean by volume so much, but just the power of it coming out of, and the uh, you know songs like Midnight Hour and Knock on Wood and, and all those other soul classics out of the early 60s. And Frank McKay comes along as someone who really, I, I guess, was almost the coach of the team in terms of how important it was that you put on a great performance every night. Yeah, it was it was essential to, to Frank uh, McKay. Frank Mumford, you know, their lead guitarist. Uh, similarly, you know, like you, you've got to prove it, you've got to show it, you've got to show up every night and pay attention to what you do. And, and they didn't take a, 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 you know, a shift off, you know, like a hockey game metaphor. They performed it like it mattered, because it, it did, it mattered to them. They were making sort of a living, uh, not enough to be rich or anything like that, but it was just so important to their internal selves. And they, it was also fun. It wasn't just serious, but it was fun. They loved what they were doing, and the crowd loved them. It was They were charismatic on stage. They, they sort of commanded your attention. And at the same time, of course, they're giving you songs that you can dance to all night long. As I said before, if, if you went once, you were going to go back. Given the, the ages of the people in the band, how did they hold it together when some started going off to college and some started full-time jobs after high school? They kept it together in that uh, Rod Norrie, who was, went off to University of Mount Allison, uh, Rod made a point to come home every weekend that he could, unless a snowstorm was the only thing that was going to keep him away. And the others who had jobs in the Truro area, or Halifax, in Frank Mumford's case, working in the insurance industry, the most important thing in their lives was really this band. And uh, so they didn't miss a practice, and they didn't miss a night performing. And, you know, they'd go to Sydney, for instance, which is, back in the day, it was on slower highways, winding highways, and took a lot, took a lot longer to get there. They'd perform until midnight, say, and then they'd drive back to Truro and get home just as the sun was coming up. Similarly, if they were going anywhere else in the Maritimes, they, they rarely have ever stayed overnight, ex- except when they went to St. John, uh, New Brunswick. And that's uh, before the days of divided highways. It's before divided highways. It's before seat belts. Uh, <laughs> it's before drinking and driving policies. Uh, there were a lot of things going on in those road trips. I'd, I'd devote a chapter to the road trips because there was a number of comic and other adventures that they had that are, were worthy of presenting to readers. Well, well tell us one. <laughs> 
Well, the most famous one, and it became famous because of John Gray, who was a Lincoln for two years, wrote a musical called Rock and Roll, and it, it ended up being uh, presented in Rock and Roll. And it's one where Frank McKay has either consumed too much alcohol or else he's just sick from other reasons. But he starts to feel sick, and uh, he tries to vomit out the window as they're driving along, but they're going, you know, 100 kilometers an hour, and there's a heavy wind, and what should have gone outside the car came back inside and made a horrible mess and a big stink. They come back to uh, Truro and drop everybody off. Rod Norrie, it's his mother's car that he's <laughs> taken on this trip, and the car is just a stinking mess everywhere. And Rod takes it to a local taxi stand in the middle of the night, because we're talking 2 and 3 a.m. now, and he's got to clean up his car, because it's Sunday morning, and he's got to get his car back to his mother. And uh, ends up in the darkness of, a, of this garage, he doesn't realize there's an oil pit beneath where the car is parked and falls in and he's got a rented tuxedo on that's <laughs> ruined. And uh, anyways, he gets he does get the car cleaned up, but the tuxedo wouldn't go back to who they rented it from. And uh, Rod's mother, I don't know if she was any of the wiser as to what had happened. So they were engaged the story, in a sophisticated cover-up. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Rod Norrie and and Frank McKay and uh, Don Muir and John Gray and others, you know, I worked with each of them to get as many stories out of them as I could. Sometimes it was face-to-face, sometimes it was on the phone, sometimes it was emails, but uh, I like to think that the book has just this rich flavor of the time period because you've got all these first-person recollections of what it was like on the stage and then on the road. There was a, a, an interesting transitional year, 1964-1965, when they hit yes, the pause exactly. button on, on the band. Exactly. And what happened was the Beatles showed up on Ed Sullivan for three successive Sunday nights, and suddenly the musical world was altered just so drastically. And with the Lincolns, they played several Beatles songs at that time, but it just wasn't enough. That was what people wanted to hear sort of nonstop all night long. And the band just decided they could do some Beatles songs, but they weren't going to do a night full of Beatles songs. And so they decided to go on pause. They all went their separate ways with Frank McKay, the singer, heading off to Sarnia, Ontario for more than a year. He say, became a singer for a band up there, and uh, they did very well in the Ontario area. And then he came back for a vacation the following summer to Truro, and no sooner had he arrived in town when he started to have phone calls from all the other Lincolns saying, let's get the band back together. And Frank decided, you're right, uh, let's do this. So he said goodbye to Sarnia, Ontario, and came back. And it was really the heyday of the Lincolns from 1965 to 1969. They really became the big dance band in the Maritimes, attracting crowds at universities and high schools just up and down the province and into New Brunswick. You mentioned uh, how much they revered African Nova Scotian musicians like Murray Dorrington and Truro and people like uh, the sax player Bucky Adams whenever they traveled yeah, yeah. To, to Halifax. They, they but, go to the Arrows Club and other clubs, and after, after they do a, an event in Halifax, uh, you know, it would end typically around midnight, and then they would go for the wee hours uh, into some of the Halifax clubs where they had uh, local African Nova Scotian musicians or come from away uh, black musicians from the States or from Central Canada. But again, this was Nova Scotia in the the mid-60s, and you tell the story of one promoter of a show with the Lincolns who mentioned that he wasn't going to let those black kids who were waiting outside to come in and dance. How did the band respond? They responded immediately, if, if you don't let our friends in to the show, then we don't perform. 
and the guy had to back down. He, he didn't like it, but he took it on the chin. They didn't set out, you know, with an integration kind of mandate. They, they didn't consciously think about it. It's just who they were. You know, you don't turn your back on friends, and these black kids that would come to their dances were their friends, and uh, they were going to stand by them. You interviewed someone who would eventually become a member of Parliament who was talking about how transformative one particular gig was for her in Halifax, where she ended up dancing on the tables the first time she saw the Lincolns. Yeah, that Mary Clancy, uh, her, that was a telephone interview I did with Mary, and it was wonderful. It, it, it just, she was just, her recollections were so vivid. And we're talking, you know, this was back in 1968 in her case, so it was over 50 years ago. And she said it was, she became a different person after going to that dance that night. And that it made her bolder and more adventurous when she went to Europe later that summer. And it made me think, you know, is that what happened to me? Is that what happened to thousands of other maritime kids? You know, did we all change a little bit through our uh, exposure to the Lincolns? It was such an intense experience going to a Lincoln dance. And the level of musicianship and the songs that they performed were songs that all touched on whether it was the exaltation of love or the desolation of heartbreak. You know, they they ran the gamut because that's what soul music does. And uh, and all of us who were regulars, no matter whether we were Dartmouth High or Truro or wherever, uh, we all kind of lived through those experiences vicariously through the band. And it came as a surprise to some eventually to find out that this big barrel-chested guy with the fantastic pipes was a closeted gay man through that period, yeah, Frank McKay. Was- there was, if I was going to liken Frank, Frank in that period, you know, the 1960s to anything, it would be kind of like a caveman figure. He had this long, shaggy hair and big barrel chest, and just had a oh, an air about him of, and he would sing these powerful songs. But yeah, it was it was certainly something that I had no hint of, and Frank kept to himself. And Frank, in the he wrote the afterword to the book. John Gray has a foreword to the book. Uh, and Frank's afterward, he talks about, you know, his appreciation. That's the single word he used, his appreciation to the Lincolns. He thinks they saved his life. Uh, he knew some other gay people in that in his time period who had taken their own life because they were bullied and made fun of and that kind of thing. You know, Frank went on to have a career in musical theater, you know, as an actor, as well as a singer in a variety of venues. His time period with the Lincolns, which was his training ground, really stayed with him, and he was wearing a hat that says the Lincolns on it. Uh, He still had such deep affection for kind of the shelter and the purpose that being the lead singer of that band had given him during those troubled teenage years. And this was in the pre-social media era, and in the book you mentioned that the band was surprised when they would show up in a place they hadn't played before, like Sydney Academy or the the Armories in St. John. And the place would be jammed with thousands of people. Thousands. Yeah, not hundreds, but thousands, several thousand. And you're right, there there was no social media. People were even hesitant to make long-distance phone calls back in that period because they were expensive. Another story I think I mentioned in the book of Patty. And Patty was a young girl in the Valley who happened to see the uh, Lincolns perform at the King's Collegiate School. And she came up in a snowstorm to Truro to see them at their, you know, their home base kind of thing. And people from, from the Halifax area, from Dartmouth, from New Glasgow, Pictou County, they came to Truro because they were at Truro every Friday night 
I quote one guy, uh, Dr. Scott Murray, who's a Halifax dermatologist in the book, as saying, because of the Lincolns, Truro was our New York. And as someone else said in the book, at the height of Beatlemania, if the Beatles had been playing across the street from the Truro Legion on a Friday night, she wouldn't have crossed the street, Chico, to see yeah, the no, Lincolns. Yeah. It was, when, I, when I started to work on the book, uh, you know, I obviously was going to talk to the band members, but it was equally important to me to get recollections from fans. That's Maxine Wallace that uh, you're referring to there. And Maxine and Craig Stanfield, who's another childhood friend of mine, I went out to them first and I got great material from them. Finally, the, the Lincolns did call it quits. Uh, some moved into new musical directions in 1969. There was a, uh, a big band of original tunes uh, called Soma. Yeah. But they started very successful reunion gigs years later. What have you observed about those shows, both the band's performances and, you know, the aging crowd's reactions? It's remarkable. You know, uh, the first one was nine years later, the first reunion, it was a fundraiser, and all of the former Lincolns, including Brian Chisholm, who'd been dropped by the band when they got back together, and all the other ones, it was a huge crowd of musicians that came back together for that for a weekend in Truro, and that just gave birth to more and more, and so every few years, for 50 years, almost, there's been a Lincoln's reunion, and they always sell out, and they sell out quickly, and the experience there, of course, is not the one that we all had as teenagers and 20-year-olds. Uh, you know, these tend to be licensed affairs, and there's tables and chairs and all that kind of stuff. So it doesn't have the air of uh, the hunt, if you like, between people <laughs> looking for affection or looking for, you know, someone to dance with or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or that kind of stuff. So that's missing. And and they're not their spaces aren't packed like they used to be because... They would fill a hall that I think went beyond whatever the fire marshal would allow. Uh, it was just so intense, you know, the sweat and smoke and the atmosphere of the music. Well, they're tidier affairs, the reunions ever since. But now that Frank McKay has died, will there be any more Lincoln's reunions? Well, I, I think, Costas, I think you were at the memorial for Frank about a year or a year and right. a half ago. And uh, three different singers, Wayne Nicholson, Charlie Acourt, and uh, Sam Moon, uh, stepped in to fill Frank's shoes and did so very well. And uh, there was supposed to be a big event to launch my book in Truro in May, but COVID-19 knocked that out. That was going to be at the Marigold Center. And Charlie Acourt was going to be filling the role of the lead singer. Charlie himself is somebody who, as a child, he was too he's too young to have been at the original Lincoln dances, but he first experienced them at her outside listening to them play at a reunion, and he became transported or transfixed by Frank McKay's talent and the music and so on that he decided he was going to be, that was his lifetime career, he was going to become a singer like Frank. Well, Jay Johnston, thank you so much for telling us about the Kings of Friday Night, the Lincolns. Thank you for the chance to talk about it, Costas. It's a story that I love talking about. Jay Johnston is the author of Kings of Friday Night, The Lincolns. We have dozens of conversations with people who create books in Atlantic Canada, authors, illustrators, editors, and designers, everyone who brings works of research and imagination to you. They're all on bookmepodcast.ca. Tell the folks in your book club and everyone you know who's a reader. And if you'd like to comment on a podcast like today's with Jay Johnston, send us an email and write if you have a memory of The Lincolns, too. Our email address is info at bookmepodcast.ca. 
If you're on Instagram or Twitter, whenever a new interview is added, we post an alert. On Instagram, at bookmepodcast, and Twitter is slightly different, at bookme underscore podcast. And if you're in Lunenburg County, a bonus. Our podcasts are broadcast every evening on the nonprofit radio station CHLU 93.7 FM, just before sign-off around 9 o'clock. Book Me is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing. Our producer is Robin Grant, and Laura Hines ties it all up in a nice digital bow. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read. And this week, let's listen to some more of the Lincolns. I've been loving you a little bit too long I don't want to stop right now Ain't no way You've grown tired of me And your love is growing cold My love my love keeps growing stronger As our fear grows older I've been loving you A little bit too long I don't want to stop right now Hit me, Jack! With you, my life has been so wonderful Shucks, I don't want to stop now Why should I? you my life 